This boy and girl are going to be well equipped when the time comes to take their places as worthy members of adult society. Aloha, y'all. This is Daniel Eisenman, the host of the Breaking Normal podcast, where my guests are all invited based on the frequency of synchronicity, all done in person, and all trailblazers and the breaking of all things normal. All right. We're good to go. This is, this is epic. There we go. I want to celebrate the studio. I'm here at my friend Benji Travis's uh, YouTube studio, and it's amazing. It's inspiring, and equally and more inspiring, I'm sitting across from my friend Rafe Kelly. Excited to be here. Um, man, what an honor. <laughs> We've been reflecting a little bit. I actually realized the last time I flew was also to see you. I haven't really? flown since the Big Island of Hawaii tribe design. Whoa. And this, so my first flight was to Washington, and that was like yesterday. And I got, yeah, just reflecting on that trip in Hawaii. When I flew to see you in Hawaii, yeah. we were going pig hunting with dogs prior yeah. to international tribe design, like 12 or 13 on the big island. For the yeah. first time in like 30 years, the lava had stopped flowing, so it was like ultra clear and epic. Mm -hmm. But I remember that you flew in like at midnight or something. Yeah, I had a crazy story, so... I don't remember exactly how it all happened, but you guys were like, hey, do you want to be here for this pig trip? And I was like, yeah, I do. And that was my first time hunting. And um, so I flew in, and I feel like maybe my flight got delayed or something. But anyways, I arrived at like midnight, and then I bummed a ride from somebody. I think, I think someone on the plane like heard me talking about how I needed a ride across the island, and it was like, yeah, sure, you can ride with me. So I got in the back of this pickup truck, and like was laying down in the back of this pickup truck as we rode across Maui at like two in the big morning. Island, big Island. Big Island, sorry. Yeah. yeah. It was the Big Island. We rode across the Big Island at like two in the morning. And um and he dropped me off in this parking lot and we went straight from that to uh to the pig hunt. And um No sleep. Did you sleep at all on the flight? Or I in the slept for like I, I kind of fell asleep a little bit on like off and on in the back of his thing, but it was like actually cold. Yeah, you because right? you went over the mountaintop in a way, not yeah. to the very top. But the Big yeah. Island, just so if anyone doesn't know, is my understanding is the largest mountain on Earth if you measure yeah, it from the from bottom. bottom. Yeah, yeah. It's also it has snow on top of it for yeah. some of the year. Yeah, it was really cold it, when we went up top there. I was very cold when we were up there. Overnighting it to this pig hunt. To, yeah. I remember we like picked you up at either like a gas station or a church. Like at four. It was like a parking lot at like 4 a.m. And, uh, so and extreme. Yeah. So then we go out into the woods and it's like still dark in the woods when we arrive. And you like set up this whole ceremony and we all smoke like an American spirit cigarette. And I'm like, I haven't ever smoked a cigarette. Um, but we do it and like it was alert and clear for the whole time. And, uh, and, you know, so the I think the first time that the dogs like bayed up and said they got a pig, like I was I raced through the woods, right? And I ended up because of my parkour background, I'm like passing everybody, jumping over these gullies, sliding down these things, and I slide down into the gully, and the dog is on a, a piglet, and so I like it was too small for us to harvest, so I had to like jump in and grab the dog and pull it off this piglet. So that was like my first ever experience of hunting. I'm like running through the woods, like chasing this dog down and actually physically getting on and holding a pig in my hand and separating it from, uh, from the dog. So yeah, that was a pretty intense experience. 
Yeah, I couldn't believe it uh, for myself on that car ride. I couldn't believe I was waking up as early as I was, first yeah, of all. Yeah. And then to pick you, I was like, is Rafe okay? Did he make it? He's like, <laughs> he's in the back of a truck <laughs> going like on his way or like sleeping in a parking lot or something. Like it depends on where we were on our drive. Yeah. And I remember using Hoppe, this tobacco uh, yeah. snuff, not snuff, tobacco ash that's quite uh, yeah. prevalent in my understanding in the Amazon and certain tribes, and it's become yeah. more popular in the United States. But I remember doing like hoppe on the car ride, listening to this didgeridoo, like <laughs> shamanistic music. And then I remember picking you up, and I remember that little tobacco ceremony and going into the yeah. woods when I couldn't even see. And all of a sudden, I hear a pig squealing and dogs barking. Yeah. And we run, like you said, and I'm like, I can't believe I'm running through the woods like this. Like, I had a lot of adrenaline. Yeah. And the one thing I know is like, from I was like, my understanding was don't get. Um, the, if there's a pig cornered or in like a crevice, you don't want to be there because it, <laughs> it might charge its way out. Yeah, yeah. But and then I run and I get and I see you like kind of in a crevice, like yeah. <laughs> and, the, and, he, and Rafe has a pig and it's like in his hands. He's like between the pig and the dog, and I'm like. WTF to the max. <laughs> I was like, what planet am I on? Yeah. And then it got more intense, and really, because then they got another pig. Um, yeah. I, what I remember about the second, was it the mama pig, the second one, or the third one? So there, I think they, he, he was going to take a shot on a mama pig, and then, so I guess they did get after another baby pig. Yeah, there was then, one more baby pig, and this yeah. hunter we were with was so respectful. Not yeah. like if this was exactly the guy I want to be in these woods with, and because he was like, "No, we can't. That's not worth it. That's a baby pig." Same thing, second mm -hmm. time, but the third time when I remember yeah, was feeling big. my, I felt bass. I heard the dogs, and all of a sudden oh, I yeah. felt like mm, like a growling, and it was impacting my lungs. Like yeah. I could feel it in my that body. Sound and the smell. Yeah, man. Like when was... once the dogs took off, you could smell the scent of the pig as we were running it down, and so then we were all. You know the 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 hunter's going to take the shot, right? So they he he picked the gun up and had it trained on the mama pig, and then he saw the piglets. And he put the gun down. Right? Wasn't going to harvest it, so we didn't harvest a pig that day. Which was, but it was a really amazing experience, right? We we really got to to be part of something really really primal, and then uh, and then he gave us the, a bunch of pig meat, anyways. So it worked out either way, right? Yeah, that that was really special. I'm happy you mentioned that because one of our my, my main intentions of doing that hunt was to provide a pig for the tribe design event. Mm -hmm. And um, when we didn't get one, I was like, man, that was, I was just like, wow, same thing. That was so worth it, regardless yeah. of the results. Like, the journey is the destination as usual. And then the guy, after all that, and after everything he taught us, and how I was humbled that he actually didn't make any kills and he was mm -hmm. happy about that, he just gives us like a half a whole pig that he had in the freezer. <laughs> yeah. And and allegedly, that was more from the jungle side, um, which is pretty interesting to think about. From my, if, I don't yeah. know if you remember him mentioning this, but. It makes perfect sense. Like the pigs that are in the jungle, they're eating all the fruit. Oh yeah, are much better than the pigs where we were at because they're eating mostly those like root tubers yeah, yeah. things we saw. So it's a blander meat compared to the jungle pigs. Jungle pig. <laughs> yeah, it was that whole experience. I remember a guy like those Hawaiian guys walking down the street. Um, I remember this, seeing this, and I, he was walking with a pit bull and a knife. And I think mm -hmm. he was basically soliciting his service to ranch these oh. estate owners, like, how much do you want to pay per pig? Wow. And he'll just go out. I think what they do is the pit bull attaches to the pig's neck, and yeah. then they do what you did, but they have a knife in their hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the dogs we were with were what are called bay dogs, which means that they, when they get on a pig, they bark at it. 
right? So they come up to a pig, and then the, the, the idea is to get the pig to turn around and, and face down the dogs, and the dogs run around it and bark at it and maybe nip at its heels. And then there's dogs that call catch dogs, which actually run up and grab the pig by its ear and hold it in place or by, you know, by the side of its neck, but generally around the ear and side of the neck um, is my understanding. And usually those are pit bulls or dog argentinos or some other kind of big block-headed dog. But, um, but smaller dogs will catch pigs if they're small enough, right? Which is kind of a, it's a problem because you don't want to be harassing baby pigs mm-hmm. that you're not going to harvest, but... Yeah, I've, I've, the pig thing, not, I've heard there's nine pigs to one person in Kauai. Yeah. And when I remember, the, all right, there's, like, we could go to any avenue. <laughs> but one avenue I want to talk to you about, and I just want to celebrate you as well. For someone that doesn't know you, um, you're one of the most like radically grounded people I know that can fly from trees <laughs> like, a, like a chimpanzee. Uh, literally, um, more so than anyone I know as well. Mm-hmm. And I'm definitely inspired by movement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and if people don't know the history, he's been on my podcast before, so thanks for coming back on. Yeah, thank you. Um, we did a podcast right after we wrapped up the event on the Big Island. That, that, that's, that's a, a great really podcast. really good podcast. Um, and what I remember from that podcast is we really talked about the metaphor as, um, as uh, porn is to sex, social yeah. media is to friendship. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting how social social dilemma. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but it's been released recently, it, yeah. and it really does address a lot of the topics we were hitting on there. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think that podcast is super relevant today. Yeah. So that was. I don't know. What, do you remember anything? Other highlights that or themes from that? I just remember that it, it, it like sometimes when you're get, getting interviewed on podcasts, I get interviewed a lot on a podcast. It feels like your cast is interviewed a lot on a script and people are asking the same questions. Like my least favorite thing now is like, tell me about your background and you know, how you invented development of play. It's like, okay, I've, I've answered that question too many times. <laughs> so what, what was really special about the podcast with you is that it was really a conversation, right? And it was a conversation that came from a really opened, intimate, emotional p- space. Right. Um, and it just it just felt like some really like it, it it brought out unique insights that weren't just stuff that I had pre preloaded in my head. It, it was something that happened within the process. My friend John Verbeke talks about dialogos, right? The the meeting of two logos, right? The the search for truth, and that how it is within dialogue that we best form each other. So like doing that really well is. Uh, is incredibly important. And so he has this whole, you know, like series on how we create those through, through these kind of podcast formats. But I think that's one of the best examples, actually, in my experience of being interviewed of a conversation that became a, a true dialogos. Thank you. Thank you. I, I feel that I resonate with that. I mean, I do. First of all, I think partly because of my creative constraints, mm-hmm. that they're all done in person. Yeah. And that the schedule is synchronicity. And yeah. this wasn't scheduled until this morning and <laughs> yeah, I was in Colorado yesterday <laughs> and here we are. So I celebrate you dancing in the synchronicity with me. Yeah. And I, I like, I want to reiterate your Rafe is very special. And it sounds like you said, you've told all about the story of how you uh, sourced and mm-hmm. created and cultivated return to the source, the company. And all uh, the, so the, that's the event. The company's Evolve Move Play. Evolve Move Play. And yeah. then the event is Return to the Source. And yeah. that's what I attended before you attended a couple of our events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I had run into Rob Ross years ago when I first started doing events. 
And so I was like, I was like, who are these guys? Like, are they successful? Do they know a little bit about this? Like, maybe I should pay attention to them. I think you did an interview. Yeah, you did an interview with Ido Portal. Mm -hmm. And Ido was someone who I was paying attention to at the time a lot. And so I was kind of, you were on my radar and then you disappeared off my radar. And then, um, I don't know how, but I saw on Instagram a picture of you jumping off of the diving board at my dad's house. <laughs> yeah, yes. And, and, and I was just like, wait, I recognize that guy's face. So I kind of like looked you up and I was like, oh, okay. He was the guy from Rob Ross. So I just reached out to you because I was like, hey, maybe you're in town and maybe we can have a chat about like how to do events well and like what that looks like. And then it ended up that we decided to, to do an exchange where you came to my event and I came to your event. And so, yeah, so you came to Return of the Source and I came to uh, uh, Tribe Design and then came to Tribe Design again. Um, it was a good time. <laughs> yeah, and we were at your dad's place because we hosted yeah. the bonus the bonus night for our Tribe Design in Washington at his place, mm -hmm. which is absolute. that's a whole other story. I don't know if your dad ever does <laughs> podcasts or anything like that. I, I keep meaning to get him on my podcast. He's He's such an entertaining character, but he's also like, you know, he's not going to, he can't do anything canned. He can't perform, right? Like he's been on uh, the Legend of Mick Dodge and DIY channel and all these things and like getting him to like say the same thing twice or like speak loud enough that a, a, uh, a microphone can pick him up. is like a huge pain in the butt, but yeah, it's well, totally worth trying to Well, that's one thing y'all might share because I know you sometimes get real quiet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I'm even thinking about that logistically. I'm like, is that going to work? <laughs> but so that's something you share in common with your dad. But you and your dad are, um, when compared to each other, are very, what a dynamic. Your dad's arguably, like I said, you're one of the best mover athletes, uh, philosophers that I know. But you are very, and I mentioned grounded, yeah. very grounded in what is obvious realities mm -hmm. compared to what your dad your dad's like a real Merlin wizard. He's like yeah. the, one of the most truest wizards I've ever met. <laughs> yeah. Truly, you gotta yeah, yeah. you gotta see the all My the dad's wizard homes, energy, you know, the wizard homes he's built. <laughs> they're they're amazing. It was one of the greatest. I think it was one of the coolest places we've ever hosted a retreat. Just like to blow people's minds. Yeah, yeah. I I love being able to take people there, and it's taken like having having people come there to my events to like get me to appreciate what I grew up with. Cause like, I do see the world very differently from my dad. So like my dad will be talking about, you know, he's got these spirals, uh, uh spiral shapes, um, in his roofs. So he, he, he takes like cedar boughs and wraps them in a spiral up to the, the top of the peak of like a roof. And then maybe he'll have like a giant, uh, metal, pole sticking out of the roof right and i'll talk about the energy and you can see the auras coming down and cause, and i'm like i have no freaking idea what you're talking about man <laughs> um, cool. but uh but but it has an impact on people right like whether it's some kind of cosmic energy and aura or it's just a it's just an aesthetic thing that impacts people's psychology like there's nobody who comes to that place and doesn't say like this is kind of magical like this feels different Oh, it does. It is. And I mean, I remember one of the cottages in particular. It's like you're walking into a yoni, <laughs> a.k.a. a vagina. <laughs> I mean, it's literally yeah. like if it, you it see is, the picture, yeah. it's like that is um, a 20 foot vagina. Yes. <laughs> that, uh, I was 14 when he built that. So I was inexperienced. So I didn't know what was going on there. And so my older brother and people were like, uh, do you get it? I was like, no, I don't get it. 
<laughs> Tell me. But yeah, my dad built the portal of that house uh, as, as a representation of the universal portal and through which we all enter this life. <laughs> And uh, for people that want to look at the, actually look at it, this would have been a fun time for the computer screen, yeah. but um, where, where's the best place to see the imagery of that? I think just sunraykelly.com exists. village? Or uh, it? It's called the Sunray Shire these days. The Sunray. Growing up, we just called it the property, but I've, I kind of think of it as the homestead because my great-grandfather, Stan, Stan Janicki, uh, immigrated there and homestead there in, in 1920. So there's 100 years of my family on that property. Wow. And uh, it was originally 50 or 500 acres and they started to shake mill and like started basically the, a lot of what became the town of Cedar Valley. And then the return to the source is hosted there. Yeah. So we, we so it's you literally returning to your source as well. It is. It is. So it's a funny story because I started, I, I, I made a video in 2012 for Prana, for the clothing company Prana, mm -hmm. um, where I was basically making an argument that the movements that we see in parkour are originate in our body's adaption to the natural world. And so that when we go back to the natural world, we're returning to the source of parkour. So that was the, the origin of the name. And so then I created this event and I just originally wanted to take people out to do parkour in the woods because I was really into that. And, uh, and I had a lot of kind of background with martial arts and these are the things that I wanted to bring to synthesize. But if, at first it was actually just a parkour event. Um, but I had been building a kind of full natural movement method uh, for a while. And then I decided to leave the company that I was working for at the time and start uh, start Evolve Move Play and kind of debut that concept. And so that, that Return to the Source was the first event that we taught these concepts, I think even before the name. So Return to the Source predates uh, Evolve Move Play. And um, we... So yeah, so the, 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 we just were looking for a name for the event and it was like, oh, that fits, right? And then it kind of is one of those things where like, the more it happens, the more it fits mm -hmm. because it starts to be these layers of like, okay, we're turning to uh, parkour's origin nature, we're turning to all of these movement origins, we're returning to a tribal, you know, intense life experience, we're returning to the places where I grew up and where my family's from and we're returning to... Uh, to all the places where I built my physical practice, right? All the natural areas where I've carved these physical abilities that I have. It was, it, that, that event was one of the craziest experiences of my life in a lot of ways. Um, when I was like, you know, studying, you mentioned like how you were studying the Rob Ross for like, yeah. potentially for how do they do these events? And what I was most impressed by your events is like, just the the amount of liability in a way. I'm just like they're gonna jump over that um, <laughs> the canyon, there, that canyon there. That's wow. How does Rafe handle this? And I, I think you have a pretty interesting. What I remember is a pretty interesting philosophy on that. But because I've had people at retreats, we've gone surfing, zip lining, bungee jumping. Um, Cliff jumping has been arguably the most dangerous, specifically yeah, yeah. in Kauai, uh, and some specifically yeah. in Kauai water is arguably the most dangerous. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but we, you were you know you were holding space for some people to do some things there. I'm like, man, I don't think I would want I don't want my name to be attached to that risk in a way. Yeah. So I'm curious, what yeah, how do you uh, so within, navigate that within the practice of parkour? We draw a distinction between risk and danger. And so risk is the likelihood that something won't work, right? So, you know, uh, 
pass fail, right? Like this happens, it doesn't happen. And then danger is what the consequences of failure are. So we learn to be very good at minimizing risk when we are allowing danger to enter the picture. So I'll do jumps on the ground where, you know, if I fail nine times out of 10, it's, it's okay, right? Um, but when I do a jump that's 30 feet off the ground, I have to feel like I would hit it a thousand times out of a thousand, right? And if I don't, then I don't. Um, and then as a coach of that, it's a really interesting thing because uh, you, you don't want to limit your athletes, right? With the people you work with, it's very important to not put, to kind of kill their energy and to kill their, their feeling that they can do something. Um, on the other hand, you don't want people to, to do something that they're not ready for and get hurt. So it's a real, um, it's been a real development of sensing, right? And then there's a communication, right? When I sense that somebody might not be ready, that's when I take them aside and have a conversation about risk and danger and, and, and all the internal checkpoints that tell you you're ready for it. And like, do you feel like if you tried this a thousand times out of a thousand, that you'd be, you'd be ready. Um, and when I've had that conversation with somebody, um, sometimes they've walked away and said, no, I didn't. Right. Like I was, I was working myself up. I felt like everybody else was doing it. I had to do it. Yeah. That's immediately who comes up yeah. as me as a facilitator. Like mm -hmm. I, sometimes I'll do things and I won't do things at retreats because I don't want someone else to think they can do it. Yeah. And I'm like, so when all like 10 people just did that, but this person, they might just, how they're just maybe so freaking excited or adrenaline rushed or peer pressuring themselves mm -hmm. to do it. Like handling that and your, from your perspective is yeah. a powerful thing that I'm excited to explore more. So continue. Yeah. 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 So we, we really focus a lot on just general consent culture in our events, right? Like, like you get to choose what's happening to your body and and you know you can make choices that are going to have consequences, but they're your choices, right? Nobody's going to pressure you into doing anything. Nobody's going to say, you know, you have to do this, right? Like you always have the option to walk away. And so we we, we give people space and we hold the space for them to try things, but we also like make it an invitation, right? Not an obligation. Um, and yeah, there, and then there's that sense. And then sometimes people have, have like, I've, I've asked somebody like a thousand times out of a thousand and I see the light bulb go on in their eyes and they're like, yeah, absolutely. And I might've felt like, no, they, I really didn't think they were going to be ready to do it. And, um, and you know, like I was, I was trying to convince them to, to take the back door out of the situation. But then when that light bulb goes on and they're ready to go every time they, they feel like that it's worked every single time. Yeah, I can relate to this. Let me know if this resonates with you. But when I do my, you, you've been to a couple mm -hmm. retreats now, yeah. and you've probably seen me do my facilitations yeah. in a way. What I'm basically doing is like, true. Like just as I said right before I started this podcast, all of a sudden I attuned to noise. Yeah. Um, just to make sure there's no background noise, and I trust we're good on the audio. Mm -hmm. I, uh, and let, let us know if there's anything we can do. But um, <clears throat> when I'm doing the retreats. All I do is really, I just, I listen as best as I can, but I attune to my heartbeat. I attune mm -hmm. to my heartbeat. So all of a sudden when someone's speaking, you know, we're going around circles of like 50 people sometimes yeah. pretty quickly, but something like a boom goes off of my heart uh, sometimes yeah. when someone says something. So then that's like, oh, Daniel, this is my turn. So, and then I kind of, I guess, speak about what I'm experiencing out loud. 
And it, there was something going on with that person. There was something going on with that person. Mm-hmm. The, the, it was, and it was so, a lot, a lot of times, then you could maybe attest to this, but whatever was expressed to them by the prompt kind of, in a way, is healing to the whole group. Yeah. And I'm imagining, I don't know if that's true, but like when you're talking to these people and you see that light bulb go off, there's a, a similar attunement that we're doing, although in different contexts. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that, that capacity to, to sort of be responsive to somebody else's nervous system and to l- listen well is really uh, a huge aspect of being a good leader and a good teacher, right? And like a lot of people aren't aware of their own heartbeat or, you know, a sense of tension in their hands or tingling. Like you have all these different physical sensations. This is something you talk a lot about with your work, but those things are really important tools for us as, uh, as athletes, right? In recognizing, okay, what, what tells me that I'm ready? And, what, and if something goes wrong, what was the signal that I missed? Because there probably was a signal that was different mm-hmm. from the normal situation. I was talking to Danny Way recently. If people aren't familiar with Danny Way, he's arguably one of the top like, three or five skateboarders of all time. He essentially invented the mega ramp event, won it five times at the X Games, and broke 10 world records and jumped out of a helicopter and over the Great Wall of China, right? <laughs> I was trying to dig into him, like, how do you know? Like, what is the physical signal in your body mm-hmm. that tells you you're ready to do this? Like, how, what is the embodied sense of like, yeah, I can fly 50 miles an hour and cross this 70 foot gap and land on a ramp and, and skateboard out with a broken ankle, right? How do you know you can do that? You know, what, what, what is the, the, yeah, what is the go symbol signal in your body? Um, and I think that what you're we're talking about is is basically that that like you have this that we have, can have the same things in sort of an emotional communication context, right? That you're you're kind of operating as a as a um, as an emotional athlete in that context, right? That your physical sensitivity is tuning you in to the moment to bring something forth, and that's a uh, and, and and again having good embodiment, good good deep sense of who you are is, is, is key to that capacity. And so for someone that can relate or they're inspired to get more in touch with that capacity, do you have any, uh, <laughs> just like the, the real golden bullets to start with or to continue or to expand upon? Yeah. I mean, I think there's a reason why like breath is so important in so many different wisdom traditions, right? It's like, your breath can tell you a lot. So maybe start to pay some attention to that. My general advice for someone who wants to take up a good practice of physical, emotional, mental health is take a walk, right? That's a good place to start with being able to tune into all the things that you're not normally tuned into, right? We spend so much time looking at computers, looking at books, looking at phones. Like we, are, we have this extrinsic sort of very specific kind of attention that's being uh, being dragged out of us, right, by, by our culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as we, we separate and take a walk, we're, we're automatically tuning into a bunch of things that are much more like what we would have tuned into in our kind of ancestral past. So people take a walk, I think that's just a really great base. And then if you start to think about your walk as not just steps to burn calories, right, but you think about it as your 
interfacing with the world around you and with your own physiology, right? A chance to drop in and check in on all those things. And then you can pay attention to your breathing. How am I breathing, right? How's my heart, right? How's my body? How's my body scan? Body scan meditations are really powerful. So, and then, you know, I, I was like, climb a tree, move around on the ground, you know, get dirty, get into nature, pay attention to the birds. All those things will start, start resensitizing you to you, what you actually are, not just this chattery thing that uh, interfaces with certain technologies. Hmm. Uh, yeah, you, you know, the, you mentioned earlier about the podcast scripted, like where did you get like the yeah. usual script? And I also I'm, real, I'm remembering right now, returning, remembering, remembering the why I love doing these podcasts yeah. is because of the conversation. And I, I just figured if I am that the synchronicity presents where there's someone that I believe having a conversation publicly would be beneficial to the right amount of people, yeah. then that's what the podcast is for in a way. Mm -hmm. And you're bringing up just a lot of things that are quite subtle, and I'm having like, is anyone else going to even follow this? <laughs> um, I, I have a lot of things coming up, but I'm remembering why I'm here, and it's to talk to you about this topic yeah. of, man, I mean, attuning to the senses is, I don't know, it's like arguably the most enlightening path if I was going to be judgmental. And that's why I think children, they're not biased by culture are so inspiring. And when someone's at a very elderly age and they've just given up at all about caring what <laughs> anyone's thinks yeah, and they're yeah. more in their nervous system, like what a beautiful thing it is to see a natural human react in natural ways. Yeah. It's an interesting thing about children and the elderly is that their physiology is a little bit more demanding, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> There's a, my mom got this, I was really into like Celtic stuff when I was in my early teens. And so my mom had this magazine about like traveling to Ireland because we were going to go to Ireland. And um, it had like a bunch of things that old Irish people said. And it's like, you know, so you'd say, what way are you? You know, how are you today? Or like, how are you doing? Or how, what way are you? Um, and so they'd say funny things like, you know, any day above ground is a good day. But one that stuck in my head was battling bravely between bladder and bowel, right? <laughs> and that's, that's, that's true when you're 90, right? For a lot of people. And it's true when you're, when you're a small child. And so there's, there's a lot more sort of demand on the cognitive frame from the body in those stages of life, right? And so like a lot of times people in their, who are older, they're, they're not they're not fussed about talking about things that like young people find like kind of, ooh, you know what I mean? Cause like, it's just the reality they're living with. <laughs> yeah. What a good saying. Can you say that one more time? The, uh, the B alliteration ba <laughs> battling bravely between bladder and bowel. Well, what that immediately brings up with me for me, even though you alluded to, it, I was like the young and the elderly is like when I'm in an intense situation, when I'm oh, yeah. in an intense situation following my heart, like I typically have to feel like I have to pee or poop. Yeah, and it is it's just an overload. I remember right before when I walked up to sign the waiver to skydiving, all of yeah. a sudden I had to poop, <laughs> I had to take a crap. I remember that very first interview I did with JP. I was asking him like, "So right before you go on stage, don't you have to like take a crap, <laughs> like pre-show poops?" And he's like, "No, I have the, he has the pre-show peas." Oh yeah. But um, <laughs> does that show up with you? Does that like in an oh, intense definitely. situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like every time I competed, I've competed like right before. 
Like if I was going to do a parkour competition, like definitely to pee right away before that. And do you do you usually pee, or do yeah. you? Okay, <laughs> yeah, but there there there's some real wisdom to that saying: yeah, battling yeah. between <laughs> bladder and bowel. Yeah, the bravery of battling between the bowel and the bladder. <laughs> oh, and what I was going to bring up earlier when you so when COVID hit, you know, mm -hmm. here we are, we're both in the event industry, in-person event industry, um, overnight retreat industry, and. Uh, I remember when, when we were talking about the pigs, when I, when they declared that national emergency, and I wasn't sure what was happening. I mm -hmm. firstly knew I didn't want to be in Boulder, um, like yeah. the, because it was so bubbly, just in case things like yeah. went real wild. Yeah, I was like, I'm gonna go to rural Georgia or Texas. Mm -hmm. I ended up in Georgia for a while, um, and I started thinking about like, wow, if the because I heard the pork factories oh, yeah. got shut down like all this crazy stuff was like surfacing pretty quickly mm -hmm. that could bring up all kinds of like bigger crazier ideas so i started thinking right away like man if people in atlanta can't get for some reason meat or food like if they're having a literal shortage of that and they don't know where to get it why don't we like start a hog highway where we just these farmers, they want the pigs. They already pay people to kill the pigs. Yeah. So let's just like start an underground hog highway. <laughs> and then I started learning about like, you know, that's illegal, for instance, yeah. I think. And then I started, long story short, here I am a, a lot later. I have meat in this bottle. I, you know, you didn't try any. Do you want to try any? <laughs> I tried any. I'll, I'll try some later. Yeah, like it's basically, basically bison and elk liver freeze-dried and encapsulated for this brand that I'm kicking off called Tri-Vitamins that I'm just super caught up in, all in on. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I think it almost originated with the, that original scare oh, yeah. that I'm like, well, I know how to get food to people. There's like no shortage of meat, actually. No. Um, and I think what I, I want to—I'm telling you this—is I want to like know what was all your thought processes during the evolution of the meme of COVID, because yeah. um, I remember—and I told you this before the interview—but I had all the symptoms in December, December before it was a popular meme in the United States. But it is COVID nineteen, yeah, yeah. and people that were working with people in China probably already knew something was going on. But I, I guess I'm curious about like in a the most efficient manner you can, because I know you've probably done hours of research and thinking about this or hundreds of hours. What do you, what happened with you with this whole yeah. COVID thing for your events for like, did you have thoughts about like creating a hog highway or an <laughs> army or, and where are you at now with it? Yeah. So I, I was hip to it pretty early. I think in late February, maybe mid, no, earlier than that. Maybe even, I think it might've been, yeah, I'm trying to remember the time. It might have been late January, but definitely by mid-February, I was like aware of what was happening and seeing that a lot of people weren't aware of it. And there was a lot of weird, like, just like, you're a racist if you're concerned about this type stuff. We're like, oh, no, like, that doesn't make any sense. But, oh, yeah, why is that? Why, what, expound upon what do you mean by that? <laughs> so it's kind of ancient history, but initially the people who were concerned about it were actually largely on the right. Or they were kind of iconoclastic, like tech bros, who were not well loved by like left wing media, and so the so basically like you'd see things like Slate or you know CNN that type, not those magazines specifically. I don't remember which one specifically, but uh, stuff like that would come out with articles like you know you need to be way more worried about the flu than about uh, you know coronavirus, um, and and you know tech bros are hyping this this thing because of anti-Asian sentiment. Um, oh. And then, you know, the, the WHO was coming out with like 
this doesn't transfer from person to person or masks are useless. So like everything got completely changed, right, over time. And I learned to be really skeptical of everybody through that experience, right? Like I, I initially, like, I, I, you know, some of the, the early, like Tucker Carlson was a relatively early person to figure it out, right? Um, Who was that? My, Tucker Carlson from Fox News. Mike Cernovich was a really early warner. Um, So you had like, yeah, so just the media ecology and how corrupt it was was really exposed by this. And I was really influenced initially by like Nassim Taleb and his ideas on the precautionary principle. And I think those were the right ways to think about this back in March. I'm not sure they're the right ways to think about it now. But one thing I did was like I... I spent like three hours a day researching COVID and I was putting up posts to just sort of like share that information because I didn't think most people knew how to get good information, right? So what I was doing was I was I was sourcing information by following epidemiologists and virologists and people with related fields or who are connected to those fields through Twitter, right? And uh, risk management folks, people related in a seem to lab. And so I thought that 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 people who are listening you know, by a later period, right-wing media became really, really, uh, really negative in this, or, or they became big. I felt like they were lying, right? Like Sean Hannity at one point said, you know, like at 2 p.m. on his pa, uh, pa, on his radio show, he said, coronavirus is completely made up. This is a democratic plot to like take down Donald Trump, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And then at 5 p.m., he's on Fox News and he's like, Donald Trump is the only person who took this seriously initially. He's been an incredible leader on this, et cetera, et cetera, right? So it's just, you know, the, the, the tribalism of the way that it was handled. And then to see, you know, the left-wing media go from this is nothing and then no, ma- no masks to like now everyone has to wear a mask. That all uh, soured me on uh, I mean, I, I was already skeptical, but like I became really skeptical. And I really realized skeptical. much it really takes to actually deeply understand a lot of the issues and how easy it is to fall for misinformation. And I, the truth is that I don't have, like, I don't have an opinion. Or I have an opinion, but it's way less informed now about COVID than it was in March because like it, it broke me down. I, f- I fell apart. Like I had a nervous breakdown because I was, I was, working full-time trying to save my business from the impact of COVID and researching COVID all the time. You know, I was, I was telling everyone in the industry, you got to cancel your events. You got to, you got to like, um, you know, cancel your in-person classes, you know, a couple weeks before everyone was told that they had to do it. I was like, this is coming. You need to know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we, we, we canceled two of our three big events of the year and then we held one and we had everyone get tested and, you know, like that was after the lockdown, after the lockdown, it looked like everything was going down and then it was going up again by the time the event happened. But it was like, you know, it was really late to try to pull the plug at that point. And we were talking to everybody and saying, like, do you guys want to take the risk and do you want to get tested? And everyone chose to get tested and the event went off fine. Um, so now I, I tend tested to think. Tested before they flew in or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tested like, in. So, uh, yeah, yeah tested so many factors, but that's yeah. still interesting. Yeah. So then um, I think that when we didn't know what was going on, 
there was a good reason to think to to prepare as if it might be mu- very very dangerous. And I think now we know enough to think it's not a worst case scenario, but it is a really I mean it is a very real thing. Um, but are are the cost benefits ratios of how we're responding actually? Um, well thought out, or is it really driven by this tribalization and just sort of poorly thought out is what it seems like to me. But again, like I was doing three hours of research a day and now I'm sort of like skimming things, you know? So I I don't trust my own narrative about it anymore. (laughs) That's, I mean, I also resonate with that. I resonate in the sense that like, I don't have much of an opinion. Yeah. I actually don't really know. Yeah. Um, but I do know what I do think I know is like the old saying where atten- like where my attention goes, energy flows. And once again, I'm left in this position in my life to choose what's best for me. Mm-hmm. It, it re- like even with chaos around me, yeah. whether it's chaos coming from the news or whether it's chaos coming from my personal life, I still have the option to choose what's best regardless of how chaotic things are. Yeah. But I could also, man, yeah, we, we haven't done an event since then. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a, a real killer, right? Like we, we had to, you know, we lost out on $100,000 in revenue or more and had to refund $36,000. Did you do like any that. of the PPP or any of I the did, but I got, got $3,000 on the PPP, so uh, okay. it's kind of a drop in the bucket. <laughs> It's all, I mean, it's so crazy. The whole thing is so wild. Especially, especially like whenever I have to, when I get to, if I want to go get a beer and walk into a liquor store or go to the bank, but I have to wear a mask to go in. That one just like jogs my mind because for my whole life, walking into a mask or a bank with a mask on, <laughs> a liquor store or a bank with a mask on would have been one of the most reckless things I could have ever done. Yep. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird. The thing is like, there's really like, this could have changed, but when I was doing all that research, it it seemed pretty abundantly clear that there was almost no risk of outdoor transmission. And so like, like I was one of the early people advocating masks, wearing masks when I went to the grocery store. And now like everyone in Washington wears a mask all the time. And like they're running through the park by themselves with nobody around and they've got a mask on. And I'm like, it's just strange to me. Like it's hard. Like I forget to wear my, I forget to bring my mask places. And then I'm like, ah, I got to figure something out, like tie my t-shirt around my face or something. Um, I'm not saying that's the right attitude towards it, but it's just, it's, 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 it's interesting to see how, like to observe your own behavior in reaction to this, right. And how it shifts over time. Like how long can you sustain a state of like hyper, uh, alertness to something um especially when people seem to be behaving in really weird irrational ways even if there is really a lot of danger and like in washington we've never had a particular we we were one of the earliest places that had it but if you look at um the last statistic i look at said uh mortality rates above baseline are up we're up 770 percent in new york but in washington it's only 20 percent and we don't re- like there's this whole number K that people can look into, but we don't really know why. But it's like it's really hard to maintain your panic level here <laughs> when it's impacting in 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 New York and and Italy. You know, like this is ten like n- nine months down the line or eight months down the line. No, I don't know. Um, 
probably shouldn't dwell too much on this topic because we don't want to add to the misinformation that's out there. But it's just, it is an interesting kind of, uh, it's an interesting thing to look at who you are and how you respond to things. Wow. Yeah, that, uh, I, I could go down to, uh, like probably 11 different <laughs> questions. Do you have any questions for me? How, how, how are we doing? I usually have a time thing. I don't know how we're on time. How, do, how long have we been on this podcast for? <laughs> 45 minutes. Nice. There nice. we go. Awesome. You got anything you want to talk about? Have you been I jumping went, around? Huh? Have you been jumping around? You've been climbing? Oh, yeah. Okay, let's see. What I've been doing is pull-ups, a lot of pull-ups. There we go. A lot of pull-ups and a lot of creek exposure. Creek exposure. Tell like cold that. water. Oh, nice. I'm talking. I'm talking. All right. So, you know, in the summertime when the water was in the 50s, it was pretty fun to sit there in five minutes. Like we would do things for five minutes, swim upstream. Yeah, yeah. Then we get down to the 40s. I'm like, oh, my, like I'm getting an ice cream headache <laughs> if I try to swim upstream for five minutes. And then the last few times we've done it was in probably in the high 30s and cold outside. That was a genuinely like intense nervous system experience. Like I'm in the water and I feel like I have like electrical impulses, like going. Like I feel like I'm strapped to a machine and like is this? So it was getting quite edgy. I'm I'm starting to question, like any workout. I I really and I wonder how, how you believe about this, but like. If I am working out in such an intense way that I kind of hate it afterward, or I'm like, that was maybe too much. I'm not craving it again. Mm-hmm. Um, I get, like I take a step back because I love cold water exposure. But the <laughs> last few times I've done it, and now that Colorado is snowing, it's uh, it is intense, very intense. And I've yeah. been questioning: is this a good idea? I recently got the chance to kind of get to know Paul Check a little bit and have some conversations with him. And he has this idea of the four doctors, right? Doctor movement, doctor diet, doctor quiet, and doctor fun. And I don't think oh, that's all the four doctors, but good four doctors to start with, right? But I think it's a cool way to think about what your practices are. They're, they're medicine, right? And the, and the thing about any medicine is dose makes the poison. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what I've discovered about, like, I, I really think that this is under underemphasized. Like, you can mess yourself up with breathing practices. You can mess yourself up with meditation. You can mess yourself up. You can walk too much, right? There's too much there's a too much level of everything. You can drown yourself or you can like you can drink so much water that you dilute the electrolytes in your blood too much and that can kill you. Like everything has a dose level that's no longer appropriate. And that dose level that's appropriate for you is always contingent on the other things going on in your life, right? So how much, how much doctor movement is going to work for you? Well, how much doctor quiet are you getting, right? Um, so, uh, you know, is, is there something incredibly powerful about getting in cold water? Incredibly, incredibly. invigorating and like truly, truly makes you feel alive. But is there a point at which you are, you are, um, you're potentially making your, physio- making your physiology work so hard that it's not able to get what it needs in other places? Probably. I haven't been there myself, so I can't speak to that. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And I, I totally agree. You know, the, the medicine's in the poison, and the yeah. poison's in the dose. Yeah. And um, you brought up something I wanted to make sure I, I talked about. The mask, like you've forgotten to wear it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's very healthy. <laughs> I think that's extremely healthy because I think what's we're getting a point where people are going to start feeling naked without it. And I think certain people have already felt that way. Interesting. They felt that way. 
I've been, or you know, being around your friend, some of your friends and family, like nakedness, y'all are also pretty. Like I could see it at certain times at the, at the uh, Shire that you could yeah. forget to put your clothes on, <laughs> because yeah. that's how yeah. natural yeah. of a thing it is. Like, I, and I, I, you know, breaking normal the book is all a lot about that getting undressed literally and metaphorically, and being with the feelings that come up with that. Because here we we are born naked. Like clothes are a culture that this is cultural, mm-hmm. and um, so and masks are becoming more and more cultural. And my main concern, my main concern really culturally is for the kids right now. Uh, for like this year, 2020, yeah. that where kids are learning, like they, they're, they might want to have their own mask. They want to be part of the tribe, the yeah. tribalism that you're talking about. So I'm curious about what you think about that. <laughs> and like, what do you think? Like, is, is ma- I, I masks are different because they're actually blocking our breath weight. Um, but like for like, I have my shirt open right now. I'm a big believer in getting sun on my heart for one thing. And I'm a big believer in getting sun on my balls, <laughs> but I don't do that publicly because that is so culturally ridiculous. Yeah, I yeah. get myself in a lot of trouble. I was, I was doing some research. So, you know, people were told not to get into the sun. So I'm going to pick that thread up for now. We're told not to get into the sun because of skin cancer. Right. But then we're told that we need vitamin D and we're all vitamin D deficient. And we're told that we need to consume vitamin D. But then there's some research that shows that like, your vitamin D levels don't necessarily perfectly track just how much you supplement, right? Like there's something going on with the sun that maybe is more than that. But then the sun, it turns out, also is like a lot of other things, right? It's your cortisol and melatonin rhythm, right? When you are exposed to bright light first thing in the morning from the sun, your uh, cortisol rises and melatonin drops off. You become alert and that sets the cycle for your circadian rhythm so that you get tired at the right time of the day later. And of course, sleep is incredibly important to everything to do with health. But then I was running into this research that um, was first pointed out to me by a friend, Philip Till, that luteinizing hormone is stimulated by exposure to sunlight. And that sounded like some hippie woo shit, right? If you don't know, luteinizing hormone and follicle stimulating hormones are the two hormones from the pituitary that start the HPA T access that ends in production of uh, sex hormones in your testicles or, or ovaries, right? So, so if you, if you're not getting enough, if your body's not producing enough luteinizing hormone, you're not going to produce enough sex hormones. So we, you know, how many guys do you know who've experimented with TRT at this stage, right? Who are in their thirties and forties, like within our circles, it's pretty common. Um, TRT standing for what exactly? Testosterone replacement therapy. Okay. And is that the, what's that versus human growth hormone or HGH? And- uh, so testosterone is a sex hormone and HGH is, uh, is a growth hormone. It's different. Um, t- testosterone is a, a sterile human hormone. It's based off of cholesterol. So it's fat. Um, and uh, um, HGH is a peptide hormone, human growth fat, uh, hormone. So they're different, different things. But in any event, uh, m- all these men are suffering from low testosterone, right? It seems to be this really common diagnosis. Maybe it's a common diagnosis just because doctors want something to prescribe and it does make people feel better, right? It's a feel-good pill. Um, But maybe it's because they're actually denying themselves some of the nutrients that actually cause the the stimulation of that whole hormonal cascade. And I don't... um, I've done... I, I looked at the research on this. I haven't done a deep dive on it, so I can't say really confidently 
um, how solid it is, but I was really surprised how much research there was and how solid what I saw was. It showed that, yeah, like if you get sun exposure, your testosterone rate level goes up. And some people were associating that with vitamin D, but it's actually probably a luteinizing hormone. Um, uh, ben Greenfield, you probably know about, apparently did a, a thing where he put his balls under infrared light for like several minutes a day and his testosterone rate went up very substantially. Again, self-experimentation, you know, Ben's kind of a sensationalist guy, brilliant guy in some ways, but you know, I always take what he says with a little bit of a grain of salt. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, that's, that, that is, uh, Profound stuff. So I'm t- totally off wherever you, question you ask me. I just well, really, I yeah. just really care about sunlight. Yeah. Um, but so. Yeah. We need, you know, getting your balls exposed to the sun. Good idea. Anyways, that that that's my 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 take home point is you might want to expose your balls to the sun before you decide to put exogenous hormones in your body. Uh, totally, totally. I know there was like some sort of like a butthole tanning meme going on. <laughs> And I, I haven't nest. I mean, I have. I have done that because I've been naked. But it wasn't like I'm trying to get sun on my butthole. I was you know just what? naked in the sun. Like, my dad was sunning his butthole before it was cool. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's so much of a hipster. I remember that shit when I was like 13 years old, walking out onto our family deck, and my, my dad and his buddy are sitting there, like, spreading their cheeks to the sun. I was like, oh, my God, you freaking hippies. Well, what I can relate is that when I, did, uh, when I first started doing yoga, I was like, yeah. this is meant to do in the sun naked. Because mm-hmm. this is the way I'm like getting all these crevices. <laughs> because I am a total believer in the sun, total. It's but like if I oh my god, this to the sun, I'm getting my, I'm like the baby. The, what, what is the uh, when you hold your feet and you're on your back? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, ch- uh, the happy baby, happy baby. The obviously the butthole yeah. tanning pose, <laughs> <laughs> also known as. <laughs> And I'm a believer in it. I would, if someone's really inspired, if you, especially if you've never got um, t- sun down there, be careful. Like, start small. <laughs> start with a little. You do not want to burn your... Uh, I'm going to Maui in, uh, in, uh, in a few... In a couple of weeks, uh, so you're saying don't don't go straight to the butthole. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, if you do, maybe like five minutes to ten minutes a day, <laughs> start... Remember that the, the poisons and the medicine yeah. and the medicines, or, or vice versa, the medicines and the poison, poisons and the dose. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with that one, too. Yeah, and the mass thing. It's just like, again, I, I, I don't know. I hope I'm not spreading misinformation again, but the mask was adopted widely, basically based on precautionary principle, right? It's, it's cheap to do, right? And... There's obvious physical reasons why it would reduce the amount of droplets that are being transmitted. People are like, people resisted it, saying it's not evidence based. But like, you could say the same thing about parachutes. There's no randomized controlled trials of parachutes because it would be completely unethical to do that. We know functionally that they work because of observation, but you can't set up a proper evidence-based trial of it. So you could say the same thing about, about masks. And masks are worn widely in Asia, and Asia was having a much better response to coronavirus. So I think there's a lot of good reasons to think that, yeah, like, let's, let's try universal mask wearing and see if it works. I don't know if it has worked, though. And I don't know if it's because like cloth masks don't work and we all need to be doing N95s. But I've also seen some stuff that looks like, like if you look at the, you know, the impact on infection rates from adoption of mask wearing, it's, it's not really clear. Um, so again, I would invite people who, who are interested in that 
to like do the research and take on a really scientific epistemology and try to avoid your tribalism because I don't know and just suggesting it might not be true right is, is probably dangerous because I, I like I haven't done the research like I was doing back in the spring but it it is just a weird thing to see like no 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 they don't work or now they totally work but only these work but no that everyone I, you know yeah. I, oh, I, um, I tend to lean, if I'm going to make my judgment on the whole thing, I tend to lean like we're just getting beta tested, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, like as a culture, we're getting beta tested for compliance. Like what do the masses listen to? And I, and I think that the, this is in preparation for a, maybe a vaccine potentially Maybe. like doing some testing to see how many people will just line up and put and start, how many people will start enforcing others to wear a mask. And I agree. Like, I agree. This is an interesting debate. Are they effective? What I will say they're effective, really effective is, is limiting um, emotional exchange. Basically. True. Yeah. yeah. I would say most of the communication that I know, when I, especially when I, coupled with words or in person, a lot of what I can understand from someone is by reading their face. Yeah. Um, and the mask pretty much prevents that. And now there's how many billions of young children potentially that didn't they they were robbed of like emotional exposure they were robbed and that is it is weird to think about in asia and like like how that's more of a norm in asia <laughs> i'm feeling risky right now I'm feeling risky right now i i, I i'm not I love all people. I love all races. I, and I love stereotyping people. I really do. I love making judgments of groups of people yeah. in a non-condemning uh, con way. More just like, this seems like there's a pattern here. When I wrote a, my, I remember my biggest paper in, in high school was that I compared, I aimed to compare potential intelligence between different races based on test scores. Based Ooh. on test scores. Now you're really, really. I know, I know. It was really crazy. Here. But I was just saying that's why I wrote a 20-page paper on when I and it was basically all I did was report test scores. Sure. And just like this is what you can determine from test scores. What you mm. make from that is your own decision. I will say that like, as in like in Asian culture versus Latin culture, mm -hmm. man, I, I feel much more emotionally uh, stimulated in Latin culture. Sure. And a lot of times the Asian, I'm like just wondering if it's easier or like what came first, the chicken or the egg? Is this type of culture much more easy to adapt the mask because they're already maybe more in that emotionally isolated space compared to like a place like in Panama or like those, or Costa Rica or Nicaragua, where when I go to the store in Nicaragua, um, people are standing so close to me and bumping into me all the time that I'm just like, what the freak is this? I had to overcome my own issues with that. Because mm -hmm. the people would just stand in the grocery line like two inches from my face. And, or in Ecuador. I remember yeah. that in Ecuador as well. And I'm like, people just staring in my eyes and no expressions. And yeah, there's just different cultural stereotypes that I see um, or patterns that I see. Without, I'm not trying to say one's better than the other. But it seems like the Asian culture is a less emotionally um expressive out loud compared to other cultures i've been a part of and that's interesting that they have much more normal the mask is there yeah it's interesting i i always get a little weirded out by like like asian culture or native american culture or like european culture it's like it's different cultures but but there's there is like i would call it like the the chinese um 
sphere, right? Like in particular, like Chinese civilization has been incredibly influential in lots of Asia because it's massive, right? And and well organized for a really long time. And I think there is a, you know, there's a there's a cultural tradition around this idea of the face as a mask that is worn publicly, right? That you are saving face, that you are, um, you know, you need to learn to control the expression of emotions in your face. I'm trying to remember. I think I think this is brought up in um, Ruth Benedict's book, uh, Chrysanthemum and the Sword, which I haven't read in 20 years, but that was a like introductory anthropology book that we had to read, right? But it, I believe that's actually about Japanese culture. But it's, it's something that we see in Korea and China and Japan and then probably to a lesser degree in Southeast Asia. That's particularly the areas where that are more influenced by China, like Vietnam. Um, there's this idea of the, of the face as being something that has to be presented very carefully in a public scenario rather than something that should be an authentic sort of expression of the underlying personality. So it strikes me that I think, I think you have a point that in such a culture, something that allows you to have more uh, ability to hide would, would have a certain attractiveness to it. Um, yeah, I'm thinking Miami. I'm thinking about Miami where I was born. Yeah. You know, there, people's asses are out left and right. <laughs> you can't even avoid tits on South Beach, like just yeah. being exposed to seeing that. And there, you know, I remember going out at night there, super like in my face, emo like people get in trouble. They're so emotional. Yeah. <laughs> They're getting in trouble, especially mixed with all the drugs available. And then I've been to like, <laughs> I remember like being in La Jolla, California, like near UCSD. Yeah. And it's a high, that's a high percentage um, Asian university compared to the town mm -hmm. of San Diego. And I remember going to these like social settings and it was very different than how Miami was. Like how yeah. people, it's very much more like sharing games on screens and <laughs> not touching each other. Less, less samba. Yeah, and I just think those are patterns are very fascinating to explore. I've traveled a lot, and I, I have my preferences for different cultures for different reasons at different times in my life. But the culture that I want Davina to be a part of is where people are loud and proud to show their faces mm -hmm. and be authentic with their emotions. And that's just been my, one of my more concerning things of this whole thing for like a long-term effect on humanity, not only for my Davina, but for a lot of people and their yeah. kids and what's, what is becoming nor like normal, the new normal. Yeah. I, I tend to think that people that, that culture is less shiftable than people think, right? Like just based on my reading of history, like I think things change and they're always changing, but it's, it's not that easy to make people different, right? If we look at the 1918 flu and like how, you know, what happened directly after that, the roaring 20s, I mean, maybe it's a, a bounce back, but it's not like the, the restriction of behavior was, was, was sort of baked mm. in after that, that experience. That's a good point. But clothes, we all still wear clothes quite normally. We do. We do, but that's that's a much longer tradition. Yeah, right? that is. Like, you're familiar with uh, Nassim Taleb's concept of lindiness? 
let's go with it. Tell me more. Tell me more. I, I really, I just think it's a great concept. But basically, like the, a, a living organism, the older they are, the shorter their projected lifespan. But for a cultural product or tradition, the older it is, the longer you would project its lifespan. So, uh, like a simple example is like, uh, what are we more likely to be reading a hundred years from now, Twilight or the Bible? Right? What are we more likely to be listening to, you know, Rebecca Black or uh, Beethoven? So, clothes, right? are old, <laughs> right? Like we, we couldn't have, con I was just listening to this beautiful podcast about, uh, about the, the kind of like human uh, settlement of uh, Siberia. It's like, you can't, you, can't, you can't live in Siberia without clothes. Like you die, right? Um, minus 70 degrees. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 it's been around for a long time. And that's something like, you know, uh, it's just something to, to consider and like, what are those roles that it's playing for us? Like, why did it become important? Why did it become common to keep the body clothed, even when it's not necessary? Yeah, yeah. So, I don't know. And then the taboo that comes when someone's not clothed. Yeah. Like, I imagine the early people that adopted clothes, they weren't nearly as uh, private about their privates. Yeah. As to some people, you know, some people, that's their biggest fear, is being seen naked. Yeah, I mean, I think... In Western culture, I think I'm trying to I'm trying to remember, but I do think that's mostly post-Christian, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a there's a common. It seems like there's a common evolution in in the East towards a, a real body moda, body modesty. But like if you look at um, you know the Greeks, obviously, young men competed in the Olympics naked, right? And that's not that's not so long ago, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not so long before the, the that period of time and. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of shame and nudity prior to uh, the rise of Christianity. You don't think there was? No. Yeah. And certainly like, you know, uh, could... Celtic peoples and people like that uh, were, you know, kind of famously also go into battle totally naked. <laughs> so I think the title of this podcast is going to be, um, my dad uh, was butthole Danny before it was cool. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good laugh um, because there that theme has been I think returning to the source to me in a way is about that is about being naked to this earth and and navigating it in a natural way that feels sensational yeah rather than looking to other people to figure out what to do only or like trying to fit in only in Intrinsic feedback versus extrinsic yeah, feedback. Yeah, exactly. Right? That, that's yeah. My, my big words, uh, rational guy uh, thing about it. But one thing I really like about your work and what I've encountered in your work is that, like, what is this sensation? And then, like, not the story about the sensation, but what is the actual physical sensation? Right? So, okay, I'm afraid. Like, well, what does that actually feel like? Well, that's a question you ask a lot when we're. Uh, when, when you're facilitating. I think that's a really interesting thing. Like that's, that's kind of the question I was asking Danny Way, right? And what strikes me for some reason is I, I've just recently run into the work of David Abrams. Are you familiar with the philosopher David Abrams? No, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, check him out. You, I think you dig it. He has David a, Abrams, the yeah, philosophy. Yeah. Of uh, maybe it's just David Abram, but his book is called Spell of the Sensuous. 
And it's basically about the fact that whatever our, our stories, whatever our theories, whatever our objective description of reality is, we experience the world first through a sensory experience. And somehow we've allowed the, the way, the semantic way that we can describe that to, and, and the things that we can do to manipulate m mental models to kind of crowd out our attention to that sensory experience. And he's really calling for a, a, a return to a kind of a phenomenology of sensory experience as the, as the basis of understanding ourselves. All right. All right. Let me, so I can, I'll, I'll try to reflect an example of that. Like when, after there was a, like a thing I said about three minutes ago, I was questioning myself. Did that make sense? Is that what I wanted to say? Mm -hmm. Um, and then I started thinking like uh, for a moment, I started wondering about that. But when you were talking about the sensory thing, I, I shifted me, well, like what am I experiencing sensationally? And I think I was clenching my jaw. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, that's actually what's happening. <laughs> mm -hmm. what's actually happening is I'm clenching my jaw yeah. but I could have told myself a story about like oh that was so stupid that you said that and like start thinking about what, like not being present with what's happening anymore sensationally mm -hmm. and that the, to me that's the brilliance of this sensations first model is that I could have got caught up in some story that could have distracted me from the rest of this experience fully being present with it, but by being able to realize what it was sensationally, that all that was happening was my jaw was clenching, I'm able to move forward and experience the next sensation coherently. Yeah. For some reason that makes me think of like Jordan Peterson's concept of like um, isolating errors to their smallest possible, like you, you have an interpretive schema, right? So like maybe the error is my jaw is clenching and then the next level is like, oh, I'm feeling anxious. The next level, like, why am I anxious? I'm anxious because I asked a stupid question, right? And the next level is like, I asked a stupid question because I'm actually a terrible interviewer. Right? And the next level is like, <laughs> yeah, I'm I a guess. terrible interviewer yeah. because like I've done everything wrong with my life professionally, mm -hmm. and I, you know, and I just keep putting myself in positions that I don't belong in. Mm -hmm. And like the next level there is like, yeah, I suck at everything. I'm gonna <laughs> kill myself, right? So that is a, a good thing. To, that's a good, like, what, what did you call that? What was isolating the, the anomaly and the, like the lowest level of your like conceptual schema. Yeah, right? this like, is exactly what, okay. Yeah. That's another way. Of, and I think the way my friend Brad Blanton, who yeah. was like one of my original inspirations for being sure. more honest, mm -hmm. um, he wrote, he wrote a book called radical honesty. That that's his, seems like his philosophy is to be as dumb as possible. <laughs> and yeah. he's pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think of it as like being skeptical of your stories, right? Stories are powerful and we want and need them, but like when we get attached to them and we identify with them too much, they can really easily mislead us. And I like the, I like that model that you've painted yeah. out there. And that is true. The truth, the closest to the, the core of the truth is that my jaw's yeah. clenched. Yeah. This thing physically is happening. And then, and what does that allow me to do? It allows me to unclench my jaw. Yeah. And then what that yeah, all yeah. of a sudden that might create a whole new story. Whereas How? if you went up to like, everything sucks, I should kill myself. Like, what are your options to fix that? So uh, I love this idea, right? If you can, if you can look at an error, right? Like, uh, I, I think a classic example is like, you're arguing with your spouse or your, your partner or friend, right? And there's like, we disagree about this. And then you, you, you see people jump to that. You always do this. Right? And then like 
you have doubt about whether your friendship should exist and all these things are starting to like come apart because like you're you're letting the air propagate up into like the entire mo- model of how you interact with this person, who this person means to you, maybe who you are. And so if you can if you can contain it at the lowest level, then it's it's uh, it's far less disturbing. But also, as you point out, it's actually way more actionable. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> right. If I'm like you, always are a dick and do terrible things. Um, like, what's the ask? How are you going to change? I'm like, you know, would you do one button on your shirt up? It's just slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, that, like you can choose not to or whatever, but it's a relatively simple ask, right? Are you actually <laughs> asking No, me I'm not that, asking yeah. that. I don't care. I was thinking uh, about that. I was like, I like the shirt. I like, I, I, you know why I think I, I mean, I think I like my body. And mm-hmm. I think that um, I like that I can do something so simple, like, Un- like having two extra yeah. buttons unbuttoned and yeah. it could get someone to question so much not that yeah. you're actually doing no. that, but, but I do I have met people yeah. oh, that, sure. like I met like people at parties especially guys at parties that like yeah. they see like a, a, a button unbuttoned too much yeah. and they can't get off of it <laughs> you remember that old sci- uh, <laughs> SNL skit you remember this SNL skit I With, don't uh, know if I do Chris Kattan was playing um, uh, was playing he was pretending to be Antonio Banderas and he had this, like, uh, he had like a, you know, like a, uh, what's the term for like those late night shows where you like sit and chat with people, whatever. It was okay. like his late, late night talk show. So <laughs> talk show. Okay. Yeah. He had a talk show. And then he'd like all of a sudden be like, you know, I think I must take a button off his shirt. And the, the band would be like, no, 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 too sexy, too sexy. <laughs> but I must. <laughs> Everybody, yeah, look that up. Interrupt the podcast. Put it in. <laughs> I, <might laughs> that I think in. I will probably look that up. <laughs> so and good. it almost inspired, inspired me to watch. Uh, that's the character from Scarface. Is that correct? Uh, it's into, it's, no, it's oh, supposed oh, to be the actor no, on your bandana. Okay, never mind. Yeah, yeah. Other guy. That guy's awesome too. He is Al Pacino. Scarface? Al Pacino is yeah. um, in Scarface. But I want, now, I mean, does he have his button uh, no, in Scarface? So. No, I don't think so. Not if I'm wrong. I love. I I have a thing for uh, drug movies. Yeah. Drug movie like cartel TV shows, mm-hmm. those things that are like sort of telling the story about that. And I'm not exactly sure where I think why. I think it's just like someone that's just so unapologetically about breaking all rules and having some sort of success about it. I, I don't know what intrigues me about those shows, but some well, of my favorite movies and TV shows are like revolved around drugs running from South America and North America. They're popular shows. I haven't gotten into the cartels things. I've been trying to watch Breaking Bad recently and I'm almost into it, but I'm not, I'm not, I haven't quite fully gotten into it. But like my favorite show in the last like 10 years or whatever is Dexter, right? It's a show about a serial killer. <laughs> and like there's a, there's a fascination with the dark aspects of humanity. Um, but one thing, I mean, I think part of that is because we all have darkness in us, right? And like it's a, it's a way for us to confront the shadow side of the self, right? Like, you know, you may not be a serial killer or have any desire to be a serial killer, but you've probably been angry enough to want to hurt somebody at some point. And so like seeing the sort of archetype of that acted out is a kind of a lens for the self, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's part of it. But I also, I really like this thing that um, the art of manliness drew this distinction between like being a good man and being good at being a man. Or I think of it as the distinction between good and great. Like, if you look at the Greek concept of, like, what made someone a hero, it wasn't really that they were 
good or that they like made society a better place. It was like they had an impact, right? They moved the needle. And like Alexander the Great, was Alexander the Great a good man? Did he make the world a better place because of what he did? Or did he slaughter, you know, hundreds of thousands of people to build an empire to suit his own ego that collapsed immediately after he left? But he's remembered in history as the great, right? Um, hmm. Between uh, your effectiveness in being agentic, right? like I, I can make something happen. And we admire people who can make something happen inherently in some way, even if what they can make happen is something that's actually terrifying. Um, so, so there's something really interesting about, like, if you look at, you know, I was just sort of uh, offering maybe a critique of Christianity around, you know, its culture around the body. But there's something really interesting to me. I think when you look at the, the description of heroic characters from, from like pre-Christian to post-Christian, whereas there is this adoption of the idea that the hero of a story should actually be not only great, but actually good. So Achilles is not a, he's not a especially good man. He's extremely prideful, you know, lots of people die because of his pride. Um, and ultimately he's, he's, you know, he's the central character just because he's better at killing people than everybody else. And that's, that's something important to the Greeks. But after Christ, if you look at characters, there's a, a lot more attempt to kind of paint them as if their actions actually result in the world being a better place. The good guy becomes, there's, I mean, Hector isn't the bad guy and Achilles isn't the good guy in the Iliad. But post-Christianity, you know, St. George is the good guy and the dragon is the bad guy, right? Like even if you go back to, to uh, like the original like the original dragon myth, which is the myth of, uh, of Marduk and Tiamat, like Tiamat has reasons for being upset. Like she's not just a dragon. She's actually the mother goddess. She gave birth to everybody and they killed her husband. And then she's like bringing terrible monsters into the world. And, hmm. and so the gods can't do anything about this. So they, they, they finally find the one god who they think can do something about this, which is Marduk, who's like the culture hero of the Assyrians, I think. And um, Marduk uh, slays Tiamat, and he makes the world from her bones, right? And But he basically says, I'll only fight her if you m give me the power to basically say, to have complete sway over everybody. So he's basically operating off of will to power, and she actually has some pretty legit grievances. That's like the original dragon story. And then you get to like St. George and the dragon. It's like the dragon's just a terrorist and St. George like has zero self-interest. So, you know, maybe we've become jaded of those good versus evil stories and maybe they're too simplistic, but I think there's something beautiful about the idea that what we should admire is actually not just the capacity to achieve something, but that you're actually oriented towards doing the good as you do it. Hmm. So, uh, I'm, and just to make sure I'm understanding that, like you were saying, you were first took a little punch at Christianity, but you were celebrating the aftermath of Christianity. Yeah, I think that I think and that coupling the, good with great, yeah. not just being best at killing in a way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Man, you, you are well researched, my friend. <laughs> like, I, I, it's amazing. You, I'm like so curious about you. <laughs> it's amazing how curious I am about you, and it's amazing how well, yeah, how well researched you are um, through reading mm-hmm. and through experience. The, the yeah. combination of both is pretty amazing. It's pretty profound. Thank you. It's it's funny because like I, I find myself in conversations with people like John Ravakey who like, you know, has read all of Plato and all of Plotinus and all of and all of Kierkegaard and you know, and all this stuff. And I just feel like, oh my God, I can't possibly keep up with this guy, right? Like how how you know, what can I say? Like he's like I have a big problem with postmodernism. He's like, Oh well I've read Foucault and I've read Dorita and I've read Lacan and, you know, I think they have something worthwhile to say. I'm like, oh, Jesus. What are you going to say? Um, but I do think that 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 I exist at an interesting intersection of the body and the philo- philosophical, because I think there's there's, and this is something that Verbeke talks a lot about is like we can become addicted to propositional knowledge, to knowledge that's formed in words and semantic, but knowing that something is is not the same as knowing how to do it, right? And it's not the same as knowing the world through having done it or knowing the self through having done it, right? So he talks about these levels of propositional, right? You know, this is a cup, right? Uh, Procedural, Mm -hmm. I know how to drink out of this, or this is a a glass. (laughs) Um, Perspectival, like, I know what it's like to be thirsty and see an environment with cups in them, right? Um, And then participatory, like, I know by, by, by being, by being part of this process, right? Um, so that's why I think it's really cool when we can we can do research that unites body with mind, right? Like go study and research all this stuff, but then ask yourself like, how do I bring those down to those other layers of knowing? Because like I know a lot of stuff, right? Compared to most people I meet, I can rattle off facts faster than other people. Um, and yet a lot of the people that I meet who can do that best are the, are the most disconnected people that you'll ever meet. (laughs) Right. So you, you can, I admire it. Right. And yet I also am aware that, uh, that the desire to acquire information in that frame can actually be really, uh, disconnecting from the things that are most powerful in life. Wow. Okay. Okay. I mean, for for such a simple uh, title of an episode, my <laughs> my dad it was but whole Danny before it was cool. This, you really, went, this really went deep. Yeah, yeah. I and I think that's fitting. That's, yeah, that's yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Going deep. Going deep with Rafe Kelly. Anything else you want to add? I think I'm I'm feeling the P come on and the schedule come on. And yeah, I think that I think that's a really cool place to end on. I think that idea of like. You know, yeah, let's be, let's be not just great. Let's be good. But also let's not just be good. Let's be great. Yes. I I think, I think it's almost like we've bifurcated those two things in our society. And it's like, we've almost decided that to be great at something, you have to be bad. Hmm. And to be good at something, you can't be great at anything. Like to be a good person, you can't be great at anything. I think that's a really dangerous place for us to be as a society. We shouldn't be making that choice. We should be aiming to be that 
you know, that agopic Christian hero, right? Um, you know, get your Achilles together with your St. George. Um, I think that's a good place to end. And then also that idea of like, you can go research the mythology all you want, but it won't make you it unless you're doing practices that bring you into those things. Hmm. Right on. Next yeah, time. I feel that. I, I was, I'm, I'm getting, I'm ready to go pick up a bow. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it, man. I want to go. Uh, I can't believe I haven't been hunting. I haven't been hunting since the last time that we went hunting together. And it's been something I want to do so bad. I was going to go out with Josh, but, uh, I think that's true for me too. I think I've fished some. Okay. But I don't think I have. I've been watching a lot of it and just watching animals as they develop. I live like in a deer yeah, land yeah. and just seeing like a pregnant deer, then seeing the the does and next year, who knows, maybe some of the bucks. It's like a, I got a lot of respect for hunting. Yeah. Um, especially done in a certain, like done with like the way the, the guy that took us hunting yeah. to return to the with beginning respect. of the conversation. Yeah. yeah like arguably one of the most powerful things I've ever experienced. So thank you, Rafe. Thank you for you continuously looking for incredible experiences and reporting on them in such a amazingly coherent way and in an inspiring way in a way that I think not only inspiring, but inspiring people to take action, which I think is like, I want to affirm yeah. you again on your ability to think and move. Thank you. Yeah. Let's keep doing I'll try, it. I'll try to do it. Philosophy and movement. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, thank y'all. Thank, thank yeah. the studio crew to our here. Studio crew. This, this is, is this feels like I've I've, I've stepped up into the big leagues here with me the too. podcasting. Hey, let's go it's together. Not, uh, it's not Zoom. <laughs> I spent so much time on Zoom. I'm I'm happy to be out of it. Yeah. Well, thanks for breaking normal with me. Keep breaking normal, y'all. Peace in.